Hey there, welcome to The Ant Hill, a podcast on the conversation. I'm Will DeFragius. And I'm Annabelle Bly. In this month's episode, we're playing games. Computer games, grammar games, and real-life games too. We'll speak to a researcher who's fascinated by what happens to people who turn game-playing into a career, and we'll look at whether we can make education more engaging by turning it into a competition. First up, though, we're going to look at game theory. It's an economic concept that can be applied to all sorts of issues, from how to prevent nuclear war to how to get the maximum possible transfer fee for a star footballer. But it can also apply to loads of everyday situations. I invited Abane Mutu into the studio. He's an economist at Warwick University, and he's written a big book on game theory. He also thinks all the world's a game. I started by asking him what game theory actually is. You know, if I had to say what it is in two words, I would say it's about the human condition. Okay. It's a study, of course. It's a framework, which is about everything to do human behavior. It's human behavior in any situation, be it an economic situation, be it a political situation, be it a social situation, be it an ordinary situation, be it a super serious situation when Trump is thinking about whether to launch a nuclear strike against North Korea. Its premise is it recognizes that the outcome of any situation, what's going to happen or what happens in any situation, depends not only what one party does, but what other parties do as well. So if it's an academic discipline, which it is, people have written journal papers on it, they've thought about it a lot, does it have some sort of key principles that, that we can extract? Absolutely they are. I think the first thing that it does, it gives you a new pair of glasses with which to look at the game you're playing, whether it's with your friends on the playground, whether it's with your boyfriend or girlfriend, whether it's your parents. Those glasses, if I use that metaphor, invite you to think about that game you're engaged with in terms of three things. Firstly, who are the players? Who are you playing the game with? In the world of politics, what game is Trump playing? Who are the players? Is it China and so on? You've got to decide who your players are. Now, in a situation with your spouse, it's clear she's the player, right? Second thing is, ask yourself, what are your options? What do you have to choose from? Ask yourself as well, what are the strategies available to your opponents, to the other players? And finally, of course, is the payoffs for each possible combination of actions that I can, combination meaning my and, and my opponent's actions, what are the possible outcomes? What would I get if I did this and she did that? What would I get if I did instead something else and she did something else? Now, two other points. The concept of credibility. By credible, I mean whether it's an empty promise. So right now in Brexit negotiations, yeah, they're saying all sorts of stuff. Do they really mean it? And that, in turn, informs your best strategy. So because you shouldn't be influenced by empty threats, empty promises. If people want to sort of say, okay, cut to the chase. What's the most important concept in game theory is a concept that's named after someone who won the Nobel Prize, John Nash. This concept, Nash equilibrium, sort of says that as you're thinking about a, a game situation, a social, any situation where you're thinking what to do, so the idea of thinking strategically, putting yourself in the shoes of the other player, that's hard. And then coming back into your shoes and deciding what's your best action. 
I would argue we are hardwired to think strategically. Evolution is game theory in action. So people are thinking strategically all the time. What the theory does is sharpens your thinking on that. So if we were good students of game theory, we'd be better at life? Is that what you're saying? So in some sense, yes. You might get that advantage over your opponent. If you look at, for example, salaries, yeah. economists tend to, on average, and more than others, you might say, what is this? Because of the training? They're better at negotiating and so on? Well, as a professor of economics, perhaps you could teach the rest of us how we can <laughs> how we can go into our next negotiation. Oh my God. Some of my colleagues are worried. We'll say, Abre, don't give all the secrets. No, but I think uh, some of it is obvious. It just sharpens your, your mind. The, one of the most important things in a negotiation, and this is not just a, a, a salary negotiation, is what, a, what one can call your outside option. So you're working in a firm. You're earning, let's say, £35,000 a year. You can go to your boss and say, I have a new, I have a job offer. And he'll say, great, and I want a pay rise. He'll say, how much is it? You'll tell him, well, it's £32,000 from this other firm. So give me a pay rise, otherwise I'm going to quit. Remember the point I made about credibility? So if you go with that offer to your boss to get a pay rise, and people do it. They think that the threat of quitting... Okay. Your boss is going to say, don't go, don't go, here's another 5K. But if the boss has done some game theory, he knows that that threat ain't credible. So what is important in terms of getting a pay rise? Always your outside option is where the power is typically. And it's obvious thing. You need to show what's your market value. And that's important. So anything else is just talk. You want to get a pay rise, the fastest, solid way is get a job offer. And here's now the the the, the secret from a place that uh, obviously has a higher uh, terms than your current terms, but a place that you wouldn't want to leave, really, although, although you, would, you would leave if you didn't get the pay rise. That's the key. It's striking that balance between if I got a sufficient pay rise, I would stay. If I didn't, I would walk, hence the credibility. That's so crucial. It's a bit like what, again, I go back to the Brexit context. Is the government willing to walk away? Say you really want to get a pay rise. You don't actually have another offer. Right. Would it be advisable to say to your boss that you've, you've been offered another job and you've got a 10% increase on your pay, but you don't actually have that? Is that, is that a credible negotiating tactic? No, the, the, I, the credibility is important. You have to have that because otherwise your boss will, say, will, will call you and say, okay, off you go. But other than outside options, the other, other factors, see, one of the things that uh, determines your pay is how much you're worth in the firm. So other approach is, as we know this, do a sufficient good work and then have the courage to tell your boss, look, I'm really delivering all these clients and I'm not paid enough. So that's another way of doing it. There are other tactics is whereby you are trying to, it's again to do with trying to show to the boss that you're valuable to the boss over time. So you've got to play on other stuff. You, you may be of value to the boss because you can deal with other colleagues for him or her. So I think, therefore, it's developing a relationship with your boss. If you want to know inside uh, an organization, you don't have outside offers and forget about the value point, it is important to build social capital and trust with your boss, which you can then capitalize at a later date. So there's an investment going on. There's an investment in a relationship. Because, you know, in a negotiation in the end, there's always flexibility. 
I think the funny thing is when you talk about games, it inevitably makes you think about winners and sort of losers. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess with game theory, the best outcome is to have two winners. So um, there are some games, like in football, one wins, other loses, although you can have a draw, right? But in many games, uh, both parties can win in the sense that they both achieve outcomes they're happy with. So, I mean, another big area that most people would want to learn from game theory is in the realm of love and relationships. And in many ways, it seems a bit dirty to talk about them as a game. But perhaps if we're talking about it as a win-win game, there are some lessons to be Listen, had. one of the things that at least I as a game theory take of you, if you're dispassionate about it, everything is a game. When you're looking, when you're searching, there's a huge work on this stuff. Many online apps are informed by game theory, by the way. In what way? Basically, a lot of these dating apps are informed by some of the principles. And some of those principles have to do with the search. So uh, before you meet someone, it's a market. It's a mating market. On one side, let's say, let me stick on heterosexual sex. Basically, on one side, they're men. On the other side, they're are women, right? And they're trying to hook up, okay? And each of them will have, as they, they're playing a game. But they're playing, it's a, it's a complicated game. If you like, there's a game between not just two people. There's also people out there. You're also outside options. And so one of the area of game theory that's applicable is that you need to develop a search strategy, given that search takes time. So you might have an ideal. And there are people, right? I'll wait forever for my ideals. Most people will have what's called reservation. I'm willing to settle at that. Now, things are complicated because when you meet someone, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's not on your forehead who I am. Should you trust me? What kind of person I am? So there's a lot of incomplete, asymmetric information. My advice to everyone out there is because of that informational gap, you need to take your time to before you conclude whether this person is below or above your reservation. There's also then the question about once you meet someone, once you are starting to meet someone, you, the first date has occurred, then there's the question about extracting information. That's what your strategy should be. My advice is get the information to then you decide, and then you can do what you want. Of course, you have to worry. This is now other element of the game, completely distinct. Other person has to say yes as well. And you've got to play that game at the same time. And that makes the game so hard. But hopefully, you know, <laughs> if we're talking about game theory, as you know, it's not a zero-sum game, dating. There's, yeah. there's the win-win option. Yeah. So hopefully in all of that, you're, you know, in the way that you're providing information, the way that you're extracting information and getting rid of that information asymmetry, as you call it, you're both working towards this kind of happy outcome of compatible. Well, not, 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 necessarily, not necessarily, because you see, Suppose you see someone and you're with the date and suppose you decide straight away he's the one, right? You can't simply assume that he's going to tell you, you're going to, you should not reveal everything about yourself, honestly, straight away on the table, all the cards on the table, because he may say no then. But however, if you, given that your objective is to, to win him, how you present the information may, make his, may, may influence his decision. Of course, if it's clearly the case that you're not the one for him, then no matter how you frame it, ain't going to work. But if it's a marginal decision, right, then you, how you frame which topic brings up first could make a difference whether he's yours or not. So <clears throat> I'm thinking about the interesting cases, the cases where the, within the, those boundaries where all the action is, where it's, right, you know, it's where, 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 where the exciting things happen, right? Two people beat, they're in that range. And which way you fall depends on how you play the game. So I think what I'm saying is that, that what game theory will 
teaches is how to think strategically. Bringing to bear, this is the bit, all the tools in the, out there. Behavioral science, framing, social norms, rationality, everything. See, I still feel a little bit weird about the idea of strategizing and negotiating love. Negotiating a pay rise, though, seems pretty sensible. Yeah, I mean, as Abney said, we're all natural strategists, so maybe we should give it a go. Next up, we go back to school. Games are popping up more and more in classrooms. But is turning learning into a game a good way to teach kids? We sent our education editor, Holly Squire, to investigate. For a podcast about gaming, I thought I'd get into the zone by coming to my local games arcade. But beyond the bright lights and loud noises of the arcades, gaming isn't just something that people do for fun anymore. The use of games in education has grown steadily over the past few years, with a recent survey showing that more than half of all students in the UK use some sort of educational game at least once a week. This is known as game-based learning, something Jacob Habgood, senior lecturer in games development at Sheffield Hallam University, told me more about. So game-based learning is not a new concept. It's something that goes right back to the 1950s and some of the first computer simulations that were looking at um, crisis management for the, the military. Um, but I suppose you know, more recently, game-based learning has become about applying the, the motivation that we see uh, children when they engage with, with video games um, and applying that to some kind of learning outcome. Jacob says that games are useful in education because they give a gamer a fully immersive experience. This means you can easily lose track of time but are completely engaged with what you're doing. So game-based learning is basically about using this high level of engagement that games can provide and applying it to education. And as Jacob explains, there are lots of things you can learn through gaming. Obviously, traditionally, uh, the focus for game-based learning tended to be on uh, core curriculum subjects, so mathematics and English, spelling, times tables, this kind of thing. Um, and certainly you can teach those kinds of things with games, but there are certainly more interesting things you can apply game-based learning to, such as you know, learning languages. Um, immersing yourself in, uh, in a foreign language is a very interesting way of using game-based learning. And immersing yourself in history, so being able to go back in time and you know, examine a place in virtual reality, explore it and discover more about uh, particular figures in scientific history, that kind of thing. And with that in mind, I'm heading to the University of York because researchers there are using gaming to teach local primary school children French. My name is Rowena Kasparovich. I'm a postdoctoral research associate in the Digital Creativity Labs. And at the moment, I'm working on the Gaming Grammar Project, where we're developing a computer game that can be used in schools for foreign language learning. So it will take you through tutorial, first of all, and then maybe you can have a little play if you want to. OK, sounds agent. good. You are in an enemy base. You must pretend to be an enemy agent. Be careful, agent. Do not let the robots discover you. Okay. You can click. Let's go. <laughs> so this would be for Please. primary school children? Yes. So we've aimed it for a 9 to 11 year old okay. initially. You must decide whether to feed one robot or feed all of the robots. This robot wants to say something. Click on him to hear what he has to say. The verb mange ends in E. The E ending is used with je, which means I. 
So the focus um, of the game is about teaching grammar, um, and this mini-game in particular is looking at teaching the singular versus plural verb enders. It's underpinned by research-based grammar teaching methods that kind of have been researched quite extensively, and we've kind of put them within the game context and built the game around it. So I did actually learn French at school, okay. badly. Uh, but when <laughs> I think back, it was very much, you know, sitting in a classroom, writing things down yeah. from a board. So yeah. how does this sort of change the learning style? I mean, presumably it makes it more interesting. Yeah, I think often when it comes to using games in education, that's the main reason that people, or the first reason people give be like, it's more engaging, it's more exciting. Um, and actually, even just in the experience this last couple of weeks of being in school, sort of standing at the front of the class, uh, of, you know, a lively class, and then suddenly they're playing the game and it, you just, you know, you could hear pin drop because they're silent, they're concentrating, they've got their headphones on, really engaged and just for me personally seeing that contrast between one minute and the next when they're playing and they're really engaged sort of demonstrates you know how useful it can be. I think also as well as the engagement side of things um, it provides an opportunity for the learning to be a bit more personalised so the children you know get feedback immediately when they're making a mistake in the game rather than waiting to you know the end of a worksheet or an end of an activity. So I'm conscious that the time has been taking all the time on yeah, it. So, so on the screen we've got sort of three robots and yeah. the idea is that you're putting tomatoes on each of their plates, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So I'll drag the tomato. So now I'm pressing the bell. Yeah. So you're feeding the robot. Okay. And they're happy. They're happy because you fed correctly. So I did it right. Okay. You fed one and not the other two. Okay. Exactly. You fed the robots correctly. The robots now have one bar of energy. So the previous sentence that we had was je mange euh, des tomates. And so that one was uh, in the singular, the first person singular. So that's why you only fed the one robot that was speaking. But now we've got the plural version. And so in this case, the children will be, be required to feed all, all of the robots to pass that question. Rowena says that although language teaching became compulsory in primary schools from 2014, there's still a distinct lack of resources for teachers, which was one of the reasons behind the idea for making the game. And then there's also the issue of teacher confidence, which she explains a bit more about. Um, I think it's in just under 50% of primary schools, I think it's 47%. Um, the class teacher is the one that is doing the delivering the language okay. teaching. So it's um, not a specific language No, teacher. no. some schools have got language specialists in, or they might have a member of staff who happens to be a specialist in language. But in many schools, it's just the class teacher who's been told to deliver the language curriculum. Um, and for many of them, they might not have learnt the language since they're in school. Um, might have little or if any knowledge and so there's a lack of kind of confidence and expertise when it comes to teaching what's perceived as the more complex bits of language such as the grammar. So now it's the end of the tutorial so you've got to decide do you feed him ham or all of them I ham? think he likes ham. I think he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then press the timer. Oh wait it does it. Oh, yeah it's okay. run out but that's fine. But great as it may be that my French skills are hotting up, it seems there could be a darker side to all this educational gaming. Carlo Perotta from the School of Education at the University of Leeds is interested in the issue of ethics and the gamification of education. Now, he says that big games manufacturers use what he calls psychological hooks or mechanisms to manipulate you while you're playing a game. These are essentially things that are built into the game that make you want to play on. And he's concerned that these types of hooks could end up being used in the classroom. Increasingly, video games, especially the big online video games, they are designed from the ground up, literally, to make people play for as long as possible. And these kind of psychological hooks are precisely the sort of things that 
people outside of the gaming industry are interested in in order to stimulate motivation and engagement, like, let's say, for example, in education. And that is precisely the sort of ethically gray area, I would say. A lot of those mechanics are actually shared between video games and gambling. And I think there is an ethical kind of issue there that needs to be explored a bit more. Back in the arcades, and I don't seem to be learning a great deal beyond how to blow a load of money very quickly. But all of this has got me thinking. Because when it comes to the use of games in education, it's clear that for every Rowena out there, there could also be some big games companies wanting to use their hooks and crooks to engage gamers in ways that aren't entirely ethically appropriate for the classroom. So it seems that although this way of learning has the potential to be pretty <clears throat> game-changing, the important thing is making sure it's the right kind of game for the right kind of environment, as Jacob Habgood explains. My own research focuses on what makes effective educational games, and I'm very interested in creating games which are more than what we would term chocolate-covered broccoli. So a chocolate-covered broccoli game is one in which there's a very loose relationship between the learning content and the gameplay. So it's very easy for children to take that chocolate, if you like, and leave the broccoli behind. I'm interested in creating games in which there is a much closer integration between those two parts of the game. And as a result, the motivation of the game applies to the learning content and you get more effective games as a result. And our research has been able to show that that does actually work and you can create more effective games in this way. So it's this idea of a multi-level experience where pupils aren't just doing a task for the sake of it. They're actually doing it and there's a point to it and it fits in within the context of the game. Jacob gives the example of a darts game where the mathematics that's been applied to the game is an intrinsic part of the game itself. So you couldn't replace the maths used for, say, geography because it just wouldn't make sense. So that's how a good game works. It's fully integrated in terms of learning. A non-integrated game or a chocolate-covered broccoli game would be something like Hangman where pupils are being tested on, for example, spelling, but where the pupils get those spellings right or wrong has nothing to do with the hangman itself. The spelling task could easily be replaced by, say, history questions or science questions, and the game would still work. So there isn't that close integration there within the game. And Jacob's research shows that this type of chocolate-covered broccoli game is likely to be less effective in terms of educational outcomes. So, in other words, kids don't learn as well with a game that's just a game for the sake of it. It needs to be this fully immersive and integrated experience which can really make a difference. Holly Squire there, Education Editor for The Conversation. And if you'd like to hear more about how games are spreading into schools, head to the education section of theconversation.com. Holly is publishing a series of articles this month by academics researching gamification. Do check them out. From the classroom to the workplace, we're going to hear now from The Conversation editor, Emily Brown, who's taking a dive into the world of esports. That's the growing industry of professional video gamers who are making a career out of their hobbies. With two members down for 80 or so seconds, they're going to smoke up, looking for some sort of play. Mid one comes in with a quick hex and in fact may get the kill and he does pike out for a hundred. Intense, fast-paced and highly skilled, that's the sound of an esports tournament in progress. Without even leaving their seats, the players are putting their teamwork, strategy and skill to the test, battling for a share of 100,000 US dollars. 
Since the advent of the internet, online gaming has been an enormously popular pursuit, and today the most popular multiplayer game, League of Legends, has an astonishing 100 million monthly players. Now, many gamers are grafting hard to break into the fast-growing competitive esports market, and with a global audience of some 320 million people and revenues of £400 million in 2016 alone, it's not hard to see why. But what impact does this have on the people who are turning games into work? I called up Tom Brock, lecturer in sociology at Manchester Metropolitan University, who's an expert on video game culture, to find out more. So Tom, what exactly is esports? Esports or electronic sports is the umbrella term usually used to refer to organised competitive computer gaming, usually played by paid professionals. We tend to talk about esports as quite a new phenomenon, but actually esports goes back to at least the 1980s, if not before. I mean, in the 1980s, Atari actually held a Space Invaders Championship, which could have been considered some of the earliest scale video game uh, competitions in the US. I mean, that attracted somewhere in the region of about 10,000 participants. You know, more recently, particularly with the advent of internet connectivity and the popularity of gaming more generally, We've seen it turn into a national and international sporting activity. Now we have, you know, huge events um, organised around some of the most popular uh, video games and esports games like the World Cyber Games and the Intel Extreme Masters and the International. The emergence of esports now has been even compared to huge uh, sports like the NFL and the NBA but I think we should be careful of this because of the way that viewership is calculated. I'd probably suggest that esports is around about the same size of, as, as golf or tennis, perhaps. I mean, that's still an incredibly large audience for uh, something which I guess until recently people would have associated with kind of teenagers sitting in their rooms by themselves. Um, speaking of which, computer games have kind of got a bit of a bad reputation and can be considered a bit of a vice, you know, in the sense of keeping people indoors, hunched in front of a screen. But your research suggests that playing games can actually have a positive effect on your health. Is that right? Yeah, my research and a lot of research actually that exists out there has quite convincingly moved the argument away from this kind of you know, video gamers are isolated, people who try to simply escape from the world through the role that, you know, computer gaming plays in their lives. You know, when we play video games, we experience positive feelings, we experience psychologically something known as flow. Uh, Flow is the ability for us to be able to manipulate challenges with our expectations of how we meet those challenges. And so that leads to experiences of happiness, joy, satisfaction, Associated with this is the idea of engagement. You know, when we play video games, we completely immerse ourselves into an activity. And this gives people a sense of energy and, and, and fullness. You know, you believe it or not, uh, relationships, positive relationships, positive social interactions with others emerge within video game spaces. And this can, of course, be linked with happiness and well-being. Games give us meaning and purpose. You know, when we play a video game, much like doing any job, it has its own intrinsic rewards. And these intrinsic rewards come from the development of important cognitive, but also physical skills. So players, what we see in some of the most popular video games, uh, currently played at an esports level, Dota 2, Defense of the Ancients, and games like League of Legends, they're complex puzzles that require the development of strategies and dexterous hand movements. So players have to manipulate the keyboard and mouse quickly and accurately to deploy tactics on screen. And so this takes time. This takes practice, and practice requires patience, practice requires motivation, 
practice requires perseverance. And these are all skills that we tend to associate in other areas of our life positively. Sure. But with competitive gaming and esports, I imagine turning a hobby that you do for fun into a job that you do for money can take some of the fun out of it. Is that right? It is fun to play video games competitively because of the kinds of skills that I, I just outlined. But, you know, when we get into esports, we have to recognize that it's a market as well. At the moment, we're in the midst of esports season. And what that means is that at the moment, about $305 million has been won in prize money. So that's $305 million across 20, 22,000 tournaments. 52 of those tournaments are considered to be the big ones. They tend to offer prizes over 100,000. Of that 22,000 tournaments, about 37,000 players have participated. What this means is that only a very small percentage of these players win the multi-million dollars typically attached to popular tournaments like the International or the League of Legends World Championships. So of these 37,000 players just mentioned, only 20 have received money greater than the $50,000, which is close to a typical US salary. So if, if we have that as the context, the background... And we recognize that actually some of these players who are winning these small amounts of money are still investing thousands, if not tens of thousands of hours in developing the expertise needed to win. You know, we, we see evidence from uh, South Korea, but it's also applicable to the US and other parts of the globe where players are effectively playing or living within houses or flats that are somewhat designed like factories. You know, they have semi-private cubicles or rows of PCs with the purpose of maximizing how many hours they can put into playing a game and minimizing the kind of non-productive distractions that take them away from the game. And this includes contact with family, this co includes contact with friends, it includes contact with intimate partners. When people are sitting in these almost factory-like conditions, is it to make other people money or is it to try and pursue their own career in esports? Well, I think that the truth is it's a bit of both. You know, they'll make money for the teams, they'll make money for the publishers, they'll make money for the sponsors in part of, as a result of their exposure and advertising. But they also want to they want to solve the puzzle. They want to, uh, you know, make it on their own terms. They want to finesse their craft. It's just that sometimes the economic conditions means that they have to spend, uh, you know, an awful lot of time. You know, they have to dedicate their lives to it as anybody who tries to establish a career would. But they're doing it under such precarious circumstances that this leaves them in quite an anxious position. Right. So that paints a pretty bleak picture of what it means to be a competitive player in the esports industry. Is there any hope of stability for those looking to earn a living from esports? You know, I don't want to paint a bleak picture um, and, and remember all the positive health benefits that I outlined earlier about playing games. It's just that what we need to do is be a little bit you know, more critical of the political economy in which these players are participating. However, yes, there is scope for hope. I mean, there's been discussions about offering esports scholarships. So that is financial support to university students. For instance, at the University of California is one example. And a number of other U.S. institutions have started offering like 50% tuition waivers and board accommodation waivers for students who are participating in esports. Alternatively, um, I would also suggest that there has been an attempt to begin to unionize esports players in order to identify their common interests, in order to improve their rules, their playing conditions, and fair and transparent play. There's also been um, discussion about trying to establish within different 
games because each game has its own ecology. So um, it would have to be, uh, you know, game specific, but a player's bill of rights of some kind or something similar, which would be like a series of statements that outline what players deserve and the means by which their concerns can be addressed, you know, fairly and, and, and democratically. So there's there's plenty of scope for hope there, I would say. Okay, so that's some comfort for those would-be professional gamers out there. Now, I've also heard a rumour that esports might be coming to the Olympics. Is that true? We're not quite there yet with getting esports into the Olympics. I mean, what's been suggested recently, what the, the esports is going to be a medal event at the 2022 Asian Games. Uh, so not the Olympics, although the Asian Games are the second largest multi-sport event um, after the Olympics. So it's a really big step for esports. So there's definitely will for, for esports to become an Olympic sport. However, I think that, you know, unless we begin to address some of the, the concerns with the political economy that I outlined, we'll just see that reproduction in other areas. So while we might not be seeing League of Legends at the Tokyo Olympics, competitive esports are set to continue their astonishing growth. But it seems like the esports industry will need to battle some demons of its own in order to defend its players from the threats of precarious employment. The battle begins. That was Emily Brown talking to Tom Brock at Manchester Metropolitan University. Okay, so that is game over for this month's episode of The Anthill. Next month, we'll have music on the mind as we explore how music moves us and can heal us too. The Anthill is brought to you by The Conversation, where you can find lots more interesting comment and analysis from academics over at theconversation.com. And please do sign up to our free daily newsletter. If you enjoy the podcast, please do tell your friends about us and give us a review on iTunes or whichever podcatcher you're using at the moment. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this podcast and also to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. Thank you for listening in. Goodbye. Bye-bye.